So how are we doing at this halfway mark of our series? For three weeks now, we've been talking about what's broken in the world and in us. So far, we have talked about injustice and corruption and faithlessness. We've called out some of the most controversial issues of our day, race, immigration, abortion, gun control, criminal justice, sexual harassment, even fantasy baseball. (laughs) We have practiced lamenting things before rushing to fix them or to debate them. So how are we doing halfway through? I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm wondering how many of us at some point in this series have felt uncomfortable. I wonder how many times we might have taken issue with something one of the preachers said or didn't say. Maybe you wanted to stand up at a certain point and say, hey, wait a second. That's not exactly accurate. That's not entirely fair. Maybe you've wondered why we've been dragging politics into church. Maybe you've thought about taking a break and coming back when the series is over. Why can't they just do a series on prayer for crying out loud? Or discipleship. Stewardship would be better than this. (laughs) If you are feeling any of those things, you are feeling very much like the people of Israel and Judah felt under the ministry of the minor prophets. Now, we told ourselves at the beginning, the prophets were not popular preachers. People did not like hearing them. They wanted them to be quiet. They told them to go away. Some of the people went away and found other preachers with more palatable messages. We warned ourselves on the first Sunday that it was going to be uncomfortable once in a while, but I'm not sure we were prepared for how personally uncomfortable it might be. We told ourselves we were going to listen without being defensive. Turns out that's harder to do than it sounds. Even those of us who've been speaking have not always been comfortable. We've had to confront our own blind spots and biases. We've had to search out our hearts and our motives and our agendas. But we have ventured into this uncomfortable territory, believing that God has something to say to us about the brokenness of our world and of our own hearts. Because if one thing has become clear in this series, it's that these things, injustice, corruption, faithlessness, are not going away. They have been with us for a long, long time. And they are very much with us today. So how do we live by faith in a world that seems to be as broken as ours is? How do we rise above these things to find healing and hope and to offer healing and hope to the world. That's what we're after. So let me affirm you for hanging in here for this series. And at this halfway mark, let me give some good news to you. The first good news I have is that Easter is coming. <laughs> All right? The, every, every week here as we make our way through these minor prophets, as we follow Israel's unfortunate history, book by book and century by century, we are getting closer and closer to Jesus. And we are going to be so happy to make it to Easter Sunday. The second piece of good news is that you're going to get a little bit of a break this week. Because this week, the prophet directs his anger not at people, but at God. He takes his frustration over what's happening in the world 
and he brings it to God. And he asks the question we all want to ask in times of trouble and heartache. Why? Why, Lord, is all this happening? And why aren't you doing something about it? So let's turn today to the prophet that we call Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, as some would prefer to say. I googled it. You can say it either way, all right? Someone suggested we just call him Harry and get on with it, but that didn't quite have that gravitas. I think Habakkuk has a little more heft to it. So let's look at Habakkuk and see what we can learn about living by faith in a broken world. Chapter 1, verse 1. The prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. Now it turns out we don't know very much about Habakkuk. We know that he was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah in those final years before they were conquered by Babylon. Let's take a look at our timeline again to kind of get oriented. You'll see that the prophets we've looked at so far, Hosea, Joel, Micah, and Amos, they prophesied in the days of the divided kingdom, some to Israel, some to Judah. And as they prophesied, they were urging the people to turn back to God before it's too late. But the people didn't turn back to God, as we know. And in 721, the northern kingdom fell to the conquering nation of Assyria. Now, the southern kingdom of Judah survived Assyria's assault, and they struggled on for another 150 years. But during that time, an even more fearsome nation rose to prominence, and that was the nation of Babylon. But instead of trusting God to protect them from Babylon, the people turned to surrounding nations for protection, like Egypt. That made them even more vulnerable, more of a target to the Babylonians. And so it was in those dark days, with the Babylonian juggernaut bearing down on the people of Judah, that Habakkuk found himself with a message on his heart. But it wasn't a message from God to the people. It was a message to God from his broken heart. Let's listen to it. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. Conflict and strife abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that injustice prevails. So here's Habakkuk. He's just as angry as these other prophets we've looked at. But instead of directing his anger at the people, he directs it at God. He dares to, to look toward heaven. He looks in, at, at the injustice, the violence that's surrounding him. And he asks that question, why, Lord? Why is this happening, and why aren't you doing something? Now, the one thing he does call out, the particular injustice that he sees is violence. And we don't know exactly what that violence looked like in his time. Some of it was probably internal, as, uh, as people in power perhaps forcibly oppressed the weak and the vulnerable. Some of that violence probably was the, the nations surrounding them as they fought with each other over dominance for the region. And either way, Habakkuk is troubled and he calls out to God. Now, one of the things we think we know about Habakkuk is that he was a musician. There's a footnote at the very end of the book that reads like this. For the director of music on my stringed instruments. 
And when we look back at those opening lines, we realize they were meant to be sung. Habakkuk 1 is a protest song. Now, we know all about protest songs. Every generation has them. Musical anthems that give voice to social and political unrest in a society or a country. For my generation, we immediately hear Bob Dylan singing Blowing in the Wind. How many times must the cannonballs fly before they are forever banned? It became the anthem of the anti-war movement of the 60s and the 70s. Or Marvin Gaye's What's Going On? as he watched police and citizens clashing on the streets of his city. Or Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young singing, Oh, hi, oh, in the wake of the Kent State shootings. In other generations, it was U2's Sunday, Bloody Sunday, protesting the troubles in Northern Ireland. Tupac's changes calling out the racism, the poverty, the the economic plight of the inner cities. Green Day's American Idiot, naming the social uh, dysfunction and alienation of our culture. And then just recently, the Grammy Awards, Kendrick Lamar's Triple X, daring to protest on prime time. So we know about protest songs, and to be sure, they are They often are oversimplifying complex problems. They're extreme. They're one-sided. But they give voice to a frustration and a despair with the way things are and the fact that no one is doing anything about them. Protest songs are laments with an edge. And that's what we find here in Habakkuk chapter 1. The prophet is angry. Looking at the world around him, he sees all the brokenness we've been talking about. Corruption, injustice, faithlessness, and now he adds violence to the list. He mentions it twice in these opening lines. We understand his anger, his frustration with violence. We feel it too. We feel it every time we hear another story about the shooting at the high school in Florida or some other high school. We feel it when we hear about a stabbing at a public library just down the road from us. We, we feel it when we hear about Syrian warplanes dropping barrel bombs on their own people. Or Boko Haram killing aid workers in Nigeria. With the prophet, we say, why God? Why do these things happen and why don't you stop it? But here's the amazing thing about this protest song. It's meant to be sung in church. It was written for the director of music. I mean, imagine that. Imagine our worship leader coming to the microphone on a Sunday morning. Good morning, Grace Chapel. Glad to have you all here. Let's all stand and sing that great song of praise. Where are you, Lord, and why is all this stuff happening? Ladies only on verse (laughs) 2. The prophet is teaching us something here. He's teaching us how we live by faith in a broken world. Telling us what to do with our frustration and our anger. He's telling us, bring it to God. 
Tell him about it. Sing about it if you want to. Wrestle with him over it. See, God can handle our questions. God can handle our doubt. God can even handle our anger if we bring it to him. Church is a place where we ask hard questions. Church is a place when we wrestle with complex issues. Church is a place where we're honest about the brokenness of our world and our own hearts. Let's skip down to the second stanza of the song in verse 12. Oh, Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Habakkuk is reminding himself what he already knows about God, that that God is righteous, that God is holy, that God is good. So he knows that God will not abandon his people, but why isn't he doing something now? He finishes his song with a rather bold refrain. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Habakkuk dares to look toward heaven and say, here I am, God, and I'm not going anywhere until you answer me. Now, as I read those words, as I tried to picture Habakkuk standing on the wall of the city with a fist towards heaven, it brought to my mind a scene from that classic film, Forrest Gump. You know the scene I'm talking about when Lieutenant Dan lashes himself to the mast of that shrimp boat in the face of an oncoming hurricane and dares God to show up. Now remember the story. Lieutenant Dan was Forrest's commanding officer in Vietnam. And when the lieutenant's legs are blown off in a firefight, Forrest carries him to safety and saves his life. But now, confined to a wheelchair... And having been robbed of his destiny, dying on the field of battle like all the other men in his family, Lieutenant Dan is angry and miserable. And so when this storm threatens their boat and their business, Lieutenant Dan mounts the mast of that ship and goes mano a mano with God. It's time for a showdown, he says. I'm right here. Come and get me. And here's the amazing thing. God lets us do that. He lets us talk to him like that. He lets us push back. He lets us sing songs of protest. Because sometimes that's what we need to do. Sometimes we need to be angry about the brokenness of our world and maybe of our own hearts. We need to stop and say, this is not right, and we won't take it anymore. Notice, Habakkuk isn't walking away from God. And neither is Lieutenant Dan for all his anger and his bluster. He has lashed himself to that mast. They are bringing their anger to God, which, it turns out, is an act of faith. I mean, think about that. Bringing your anger to God is an act of faith, believing that there's a God there who will hear it, who wants to hear it. And so God lets us do it. He lets us wrestle with him over all that's wrong in the world and in our lives. 
And then when the time is right, in ways we may not expect, he shows himself. He doesn't always answer our questions exactly the way we want him to, but he shows himself so that we might know him better. Let's see how it happens in chapter two. God shows up. Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It certainly will come and will not delay. Okay, Habakkuk, the Lord says, you want to go one-on-one with me? Get ready. Buckle up because there's an answer coming. It may not be the answer you expect, and it may not come when and where you expect it, but believe me, it will come, my answer to evil. And in the following verses, he goes on to pronounce judgment on evildoers in Judah and in Babylon. He names their sins, and he declares his anger over them. Now, we won't take time to read the whole chapter. It is too depressing. But listen to a few of the pronouncements. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. Woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. The Lord reminds Habakkuk that it's people who are doing these things to one another. It's men and women who are perpetrating these kinds, these crimes, stealing, taking what isn't theirs, treating each other unjustly, shedding each other's blood. Why are you mad at me, Habakkuk, the Lord says. It's you and your people who are doing these things to one another. As he comes to the end, the Lord says, the violence you have done to Lebanon, he's speaking now to Babylon primarily, will overwhelm you. And and your destruction of animals will terrify you. God cares even about the animal life of our planet. For you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. You think you're mad about violence and injustice, Habakkuk? You have no idea how angry I am. I made these people, Habakkuk. I formed all of you in my image for my glory, for the good of the earth. And look what you've done to it. Look what you're doing to one another. Friends, we, we have to remember this. We're quick to look at God and say, what gives? We're the ones. We have to own our own violent tendencies. I've told you many times before, I grew up in a wonderful, happy, healthy home. Church-going, God-fearing, peace-loving family. But I will also tell you that my brother and I had an arsenal of toy guns and weapons in the garage, enough to outfit the whole neighborhood, which we did on a regular basis. And you know as well as I do that if my parents had taken away all of those guns, we'd have picked up sticks or broom handles and turned them into guns. Now, why do we do that? What's our fascination with weaponry and with violence? Just recently, we were visiting with our kids and our grandkids. We went out for dinner one evening. We're at a family restaurant celebrating one of the grandkids' birthdays. There are TVs all around the restaurant, most of them tuned to sports network stations. 
And as we're sitting around the table having conversations with the kids and celebrating our three-year-old granddaughter's birthday, I happened to glance up at one of the screens to see two women in a cage beating each other bloody. Now, why do we call that entertainment? Is that what God wants? Is that what I want for my granddaughters, for my grandsons, for that matter? We have to own the fact that that by our viewing habits, by our spending habits, we have helped to create a culture that glorifies and glamorizes violence. Our children, by the time they're 18, will have witnessed 16,000 murders and 200,000 physical assaults. And on video games, they will imaginatively have actually committed those violent acts. We own that. We have to own the fact as human beings that in the year 2017, there were over 20 armed conflicts in the world, leading to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people, civilians, many of them, men and women, human beings killing human beings. Friends, this is not what God had in mind. This is not God's doing. This is our doing. And he is as angry about it as we are, and even more so. So as he responds to Habakkuk's complaint, he says, you want judgment, Habakkuk? Judgment is coming. And he goes on to declare that the violence that they are inflicting on each other is going to come back on all of their own heads. That will be their judgment. Those who live by the sword die by the sword, the New Testament tells us. But then, the Lord concludes his answer with a call to worship of all things. Verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Now, what's going on here? Why a call to worship after this grim recitation of human failure and brokenness? It's because worship is meant to remind us that God is not like us. God is holy. Remember, we talked about it a couple weeks ago. To say that God is holy means that he's other, that he's different, that he's greater and better than we could ever possibly hope to be. We think we're good and merciful and just and kind. We have no idea who's just and merciful and good and kind. God is all of those things. God is not like us. We are kind one minute and cruel the next. We favor our friends and we work against our enemies. God is not like that. God is always righteous. God is always just. God is always good all the time. God is good. And and friends, we need to remember that because when when we watch the way the world works, we, we see very clearly that life is not always good. People are not always good. Governments are not always good. Nature is not always good. But God is always good. His character does not change. He is always there being good and exercising good on our behalf, on behalf of his people. And that's why we need worship. Because worship reminds us of these things. So we need to gather in places like this once a week or so at least to sing and read and speak 
of a God who is holy and righteous and good and just because our world is not and we are not. It's why we need to spend time privately, personally in the scriptures because if we listen only to our news feeds, only to protest songs, only to the ranting and raving of social media. We get a skewed perspective on the world and humankind and God. And so we, we need the scriptures. Uh, along with many of you who use the Encounter with God devotional guide here, uh, I woke up this morning and turned to Psalm 99, the assigned reading for the day. And this is what I read. The king is mighty. He loves justice. In Jacob, he has done what is just and right. Exalt the Lord and worship at his footstool, for he is holy. We need those reminders. We need to pray, whether it's in the sanctuary or privately at home, to pray and pour our hearts out to God, our frustration and our confessions, our lament, so that we can receive forgiveness and healing and help. I had one of my most meaningful moments of worship in a long, long time just a few weeks ago, sitting right down here in the second or third row for our Ash Wednesday service, as hundreds and hundreds of people from all across our campuses, people of all ages, all walks of life, all spiritual, cultural backgrounds, came forward in humility to receive the sign of, of brokenness and mortality on our foreheads. Friends, worship brings us to a place of humility before God. We recognize who we are and we recognize who he is, believing that he will meet us there in those moments and begin making us whole again. So that's how we live by faith in a broken world. We, we wrestle with God when we need to, and then we come to worship, to stand, sit, bow, pray, in the presence of a God who's always good. And that's what Habakkuk does. He wrestles, he worships, and then he waits. He waits. Let's go to chapter three and the end of the song. Lord, he says, I have heard of your fame I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. See, having voiced his complaint, having wrestled it out with God and then bowed in worship, he's now ready to speak again, but he's a little more subdued this time, isn't he? No more fist shaking. He's in a different kind of a place. And in the verses that follow, he remembers God's mighty work of creation. How God set the sun and the moon in their places. How he split the earth with rivers. He remembers the many times God has been graciously faithful to his people, delivering them from some peril or plague. He reminds himself and his people that God, their God, is angry about sin, but merciful towards people. Skip down to verse 16. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity or judgment to come down on the nation invading us. He's speaking now about Babylon. 
And so in spite of his frustration with everything that's happening, in spite of the fact that all his answer questions have not been fully answered, he is ready now, having wrestled and worshipped, he's ready now to wait, to trust God to do what's right, to put things right in his time and in his way, to judge evil and show mercy. Habakkuk didn't know how and when God was going to do that, but he's ready to trust. Listen to some of the closing words of the song. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in God my Savior. It's one of the most remarkable declarations of faith in all of Scripture. Habakkuk is beginning to understand that things are going to get worse before they get better. In fact, he imagines a day when every source of food in the city is gone, having been taken away by their invaders, which in fact happened when Babylon swooped in on the nation. But he also imagines himself meeting God in those moments, being sustained in those moments, encountering God in meaningful ways. Listen to the final line. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. He's imagining a deer, vulnerable, but high now, above the dangers of the forest floor, out of the reach of predators. A deer, sure-footedly, scampering from one lofty peak to another. And he's imagining himself like that deer, rising above all the brokenness of this world and moving from one meaningful encounter with his God to another. That's what it means to live by faith. In fact, he points us to one of the most important verses in the whole book and maybe the whole Bible. Chapter 2, verse 3. But the righteous will live by faith. Living by faith doesn't mean having all your questions answered. Living by faith doesn't mean never having any doubts. Living by faith means wrestling, worshiping, and waiting for a God you know to be good. Trusting God with your brokenness and the brokenness of the world. Believing that he can and will do something good in his time and in his way. And that he will meet you in the meantime to bring healing and hope and help. So we rise above the brokenness of this world when we wrestle, worship, and wait for the God who is always good. We live by faith when we wrestle, worship, and wait. As things turned out, Lieutenant Dan and the shrimp boat survived the storm. And in time, after years and years of struggle, Lieutenant Dan found peace with himself and with the world and even with God. Still without his legs, but peace with himself and the world and God. And we too can find that kind of peace in the midst of circumstances that are far less than ideal. Now Habakkuk didn't realize how long he was going to have to wait for God to finally put things right. It would actually be 600 years 
from the time he sang this song that God came down from heaven to be with us in our brokenness. His son, Jesus, stepped into our place, joined us in this world. And Jesus suffered the worst kind of violence this world has to offer. There's hardly a worse way to die than death by crucifixion. It's painful, it's slow, it's humiliating, and Jesus experienced it. Jesus suffered the worst kind of injustice a human being can experience. An innocent man sentenced to death for crimes he never committed. Jesus suffered that injustice. He suffered the worst kind of faithlessness a human being can experience. His best friends deserting, betraying, and denying him. Jesus experienced the worst of it. It was so unjust. It was so violent. It was so wrong that even Jesus lashed or fastened to that cross, had his own wrestling moment with God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's Psalm 22. It's a song of protest. There on the cross, God judged evil once and for all. All of our injustice, all of our unfaithfulness, all of our violence, all of our corruption, he put it all on his son. And Jesus, like a faithful bodyguard, threw himself in the path of that judgment. And he bore all of it for our sakes that we might be forgiven, that we might be free, that we might live. Someday, God will bring an end to all the evil and the violence of this world. In the meantime, he is putting things right one person at a time so that we might begin joining him in putting things right in this world. And so we rise above the brokenness of this world when we wrestle, worship, and wait for the God who is always good. I don't know which of those three things you might need to do today, but we actually have a few moments to do that as we gather around the communion table in just a moment. Maybe, maybe you have a complaint, something on your heart that you need to wrestle with God over. I encourage you in these next few quiet moments, bring it to him in prayer. Or maybe you, you need to worship. You need to pause and remind yourself of the many, many ways God has been good and faithful to you. Or maybe you need to wait. You need to trust him with some challenge, some heartache that you're dealing with in your life and believe that he can do something good with it in his time and in his way. A communion table is a wonderful way to bring it all, bring our brokenness before the Lord. So let's bow in prayer as we prepare to do that. Lord, we are grateful for this word that speaks so powerfully to the realities of our world today and the feelings that we might be feeling at, on this very day. Thank you that you're a God who's willing to hear the deep cries of our heart. Thank you that you're willing to meet us in all the experiences of our lives. And thank you that you are able to heal and help so that we might heal and help others. So we offer you these next few moments, Lord 
and ask that you meet us here around this table that we might more fully live by faith in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.